Kent Garrett, welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now pushing 80. In 1959, we entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. With me are five of my Black classmates, John Woodford from Ann Arbor, Jerry Secundi from Pasadena, George Jones from Atlanta, Ezra Griffith from New Haven, and Fred Easter from Minneapolis. I'm also joined by classmates Jay Pasikoff from Williams College, Marcy Benstock from New York City, Hampton Howell from Nashville, Alden Briscoe from San Mateo, Jason Morford from Freeport, Maine, and Jeffrey Fox from Southern Spain. Our guest is Elizabeth Hinton. She is Associate Professor of History and African American Studies at Yale University and Professor of Law at Yale Law School. Her research focuses on the persistence of poverty and racial inequality in the 20th century United States. Her latest book is titled America on Fire, The Untold History of Police Violence and Black Rebellion Since the 1960s. Um, this is my second book. My first book was called, was based on my dissertation research, which I did do with the, uh, the great Eric Boner at Columbia University. My first book was called From the War on Poverty to the War on Crime, The Making of Mass Incarceration in America. And that was kind of a, uh, it, it was a history of crime control policies uh, from the Kennedy administration through the Reagan administration. Um, to, to understand the, you know, the, the develop, the way public policy fostered the criminalization of low-income Americans of color in particular, um, and turned the United States into a mass incarceration society by the late 20th century. And in many ways, this book, uh, grows out of, uh, the questions at the center of that research, but really focuses on community responses to the expansion of policing and the militarization of, of police forces um, in the years after Lyndon Johnson called the war on crime in 1965. So um, I was really fortunate to gain access to this archive uh, from the Lemberg Center for the Study of Violence, which was housed at Brandeis University and, um, and was essentially a research team that formed after John F. Kennedy's assassination to, uh, to quantify and to study and to uh, collect oral histories on all kinds of violence that, that you know, was happening in the United States during the 1960s. So not just, um, you know, what, what so-called rioting in black communities, but also the anti-war movement, uh, labor movements, student movements. And when I, you know, when I encountered this archive and I could talk to you more about how I gained access to it, but I saw, you know, I was, it was just a treasure trove of newspaper clippings um, documenting, you know, encounters and, and violent protests between uh, particularly black youth and police and not just in big cities, um, but in, you know, mid-sized cities and rural areas and not just in the Northeast, but um, throughout the United States. I think the you know, even for me coming into this research and an assumption that I had um, when I wrote the first book was, you know, the, the kind of narrative that we tell that, you know, the era of, um, of urban uprisings began in Harlem in 1964 with the killing of an unarmed um, 
black high school student by a New York City police officer and then, you know, kind of peaked during the uh, 1967 rebellions in Newark and Detroit. And then of course the hundred some cities that erupted after Martin Luther King's assassination. But this, this archive shows that actually the, you know, the violence um, increased after the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act was enacted, which started the war on crime, started the federal government's investment in local law enforcement. And once the, you know, these, the strategies that were used in the big cities began to hit smaller cities like Harrisburg, Pennsylvania and Carver Ranches, Florida and Albuquerque, New Mexico and Stockton, California, um, residents in the black residents in these communities began to respond in much the same way as their big city counterparts. So, um, you know, in total between 1964 and 1972, there were more than 2000 uh, rebellions, what I call rebellions and, uh, and, and 1950 of them occurred in that you know, May 1968, so after Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination and um, 1972. And one of the big things that I'm trying to do in the book is, you know, is to change the, our, the, the kind of way that we talk about what this form of political violence. So to answer your, your, your question, Ken, you know, beginning with Harlem in 1964, Johnson said, you know, this violence is a riot, it's criminal, it's mean, meaningless, it's senseless. Um, really ignoring the underlying socioeconomic grievances that were shared with um, between the people who felt they had no recourse um, but to engage in violent protest strategies um, and the mainstream civil rights movement. So, you know, the civil rights movement like rebellion was, you know, about an end to police brutality, protection from white supremacist terrorism, um, you know, access to decent jobs, educational opportunity and housing, essentially full political and economic inclusion in American society. And so in, in labeling this, uh, this, this form of violence, you know, and distancing it from civil rights and labeling it as criminal, then the only solution becomes more police instead of investing the resources in communities that might've gotten to the root of the problems. And of course, you know, this is exactly what the Kerner Commission recognized in its report of 1968, you know, calling for essentially a Marshall Plan for American cities and a different set of investments outside of law enforcement. And, you know, the long term solution that we that we get that's supported at all levels of government is this embrace of um, policing and surveillance and incarceration at the expense of social welfare programs, which is, you know, part of the reason why um, this form of political violence, which really after Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination became the most widely adopted form of protest among, among young people in, um, in low-income communities of color, um, you know, which is why we continue to see this today. And so, um, you know, the events of last summer just really inspired me. I, you know, I had been, I had this archive, I had done the research, I had written up some of it, but I, you know, I, I really felt after last summer that it was just so important for this history to get out there and for us to recognize that, you know, this, <laughs> these, these issues didn't begin with Michael Brown and Ferguson in 2014 or George Floyd, that they've been um, a part of our communities and our domestic policies, um, you know, for, you know, especially since the civil rights movement, but even beyond that. Part of it is just this, um, this consistent unwillingness or resistance on the part of national policymakers to really invest um, a different set of resources into communities. And instead, 
you know, post-civil rights. And, you know, let me back up. So there's this like larger tendency in US history, of course, that after rights are extended, um, you know, and the bounds of citizenship expand, um, it, you know, to, to African-Americans in particular, the response that the, the response is more, you know, new criminal laws and, um, and, 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 new, and new forms of incarceration. So immediately after emancipation, of course, the Southern states adopt all of these black codes um, to criminalize newly freed people to try to get them back um, working on the plantation instead of autonomously. And if they weren't working for um, a white planter, they could be arrested and ensnared in the convict lease system. So this is kind of the first the, the first mass incarceration. And of course, after emancipation, that's when we begin to see the disproportionate rates of, um, of people of African descent in the criminal legal system. And then a hundred years later, um, and this is one of the really kind of surprising findings of my first book, because it wasn't how we were discussing the origins of mass incarceration, but you know, after, you know, one year after the Civil Rights Act and actually one week before Johnson sends the Voting Rights Act to Congress, he calls for the war on crime. So in this moment, the height of the Civil Rights Revolution, there's also this unprecedented move on the part of the federal government to expand um, policing and surveillance. And so, you know, I think part of it is that ultimately, um, rather than make the kind of necessary structural transformations to meaningfully address the, the core issues or the root causes of racial inequality in the in the U.S. Um, instead, policymakers since the civil rights movement have decided to, um, in, you know, in, invest in crime control as a way to manage the material consequences of poverty and racial inequality as they appear or manifest themselves through crime and and violence in our communities. And one of the lessons of both of my books that I stress again and again that we now know um, is that this domestic policy path has not effectively worked uh, to keep our many of our most vulnerable communities safe. It has not addressed the, the ongoing problem of gun violence in our communities and um, and the decision to invest in, in like in my home state of Michigan in incarcerating pe young people instead of in educating young people has created both a fiscal crisis, but you know, something that, you know, mass incarceration itself, just as far as I'm concerned, has no place in a, um, in a democracy. And I think there, we know that there are much more cost-effective alternatives to dealing again with, um, with, with what some of the root causes of these, uh, of these problems are. And, and I, and I think that's a big part of what, uh, motivated the protests of last summer and what things like, um, you know, what, what, what the slogan, the, the, the ideas behind the slogan of defund, which is saying, you know, let's invest, let's bring about a different kind of investments um, into, into communities beyond the police and beyond uh, the prison system. Doesn't it seem to you that things are working exactly as they were intended? This kind of schizophrenia of do one thing that makes it look like you're, um, woke and and then do two things at the same time that are repressive yeah so that's the you know i think that's that's the big question right you know is the system is the system broken or is it working as designed and i think um you know i i think that 
I guess my answer is that we had, and this is something that I that I talk about in the book. I think it's a lesson of the book that we have to move beyond um, police re reform because police reform itself is not designed to deal with the underlying causes. That if we're serious about reducing both community violence and police violence, then we need to think about how to provide you know, people with robust job opportunities. We need a complete overhaul of our urban public school system so that they are flourishing and thriving and look as good as many of the suburban communities. I mean, it's not as if US public schools are, are bad. They're great in, in many suburban communities, but in the school systems that serve um, either color and, and low income Americans aren't as good in that, um, you know, we, so we need a new, we need a completely new invested in that expanded secondary educational opportunities. Um, and we know that things like, uh, like Head Start programs, early childhood education, job programs for, for youth that are vulnerable um, to gun violence actually work, that actually keep communities safer and they're much cheaper than, than, um, than spending the money on arresting um, young people. So I, I think, you know, all of this indicates that the continued, even the George Floyd Justice Act, which, you know, I believe should pass and it's a, but it's just a baby step that won't deal with the underlying, again, the underlying conditions that lead to the circumstances um, that result in the killings of people like George Floyd. Like for instance, you know, so that the legislation bans chokeholds, but the four officers who beat Rodney King in Los Angeles in 91, you know, said that they used the, the you know, the four foot batons in their, in their feet um, during the assault because chokeholds were banned in Los Angeles. And we also, you know, we've seen recently body cameras um, aren't, you know, are, don't, don't necessarily stop uh, police from using excessive force and don't necessarily lead to greater transparency, especially when they're withheld from the public as we've seen um, in some recent cases. So the call for, you know, the, what I've seen in my research is that you know, very often these calls for better training and these calls for more investment in, in police as, as a way to deal with the underlying problems, again, don't work. So instead of spending, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, um, if not billions, uh, on reforming police departments, I think, you know, it's it's really, if, if, if we want to get out of, of, of these, um, these problems, these inequalities, these disparities as being kind of part of a lot larger design, if that's what it is, then I think it's so important that we begin to look out, look beyond the police um, for solutions to public safety. Mm -hmm. so, oh, excuse me. You mentioned several things that seem to work well, the Head Start programs and so on. And I'm just wondering if you've looked at any other societies that have similar conflicts and if, mm -hmm. if, if any of them can give us any kind of models that might be useful. It, it seems to me that France is, if anything, doing worse, but, um, uh, you know, and Britain, and I'm just, just wondering if, if or Canada, um, if, if, have you looked at the, have you considered uh, other models? Yeah, so I'm not, I'm not an expert in, um, in all of the programs that are going on around the world, you know, in, in different approaches, but I, you know, I do know that incarceration in places like Norway and Sweden, I think a lot of reformers here are looking to as a model because the prison system itself just operates completely differently. Um, and I know in Canada too. I mean, the 
it's based those are those are systems if i may interrupt yeah that are not as diverse as the united states exactly the only country on the planet that incarcerates a larger percentage of its population is south africa and that's the only country that has a greater percentage of black people yeah so that's a i mean and, and that's a that's a really important point i mean i think that the history of um slavery in the western hemisphere i mean we see similar things too in in brazil and of course like colonization <laughs> um the uk and france um you know leads to different approaches to um to jailing people um and it, and and incarceration serves um and the legal system serves more as an instrument of um, of racial control. But there are, you know, these in in Norway and Sweden and other the the, the there is in, you know in car, there is an idea that um, you know we say right our, our prison system is often in many states called the correctional system, but of course it doesn't actually do that. There isn't it is in other countries um, that are less diverse, as you pointed out, Fred. Um, an emphasis on rehabilitation that isn't really a part of um, of the purpose and function of incarceration here. It's not, um, you know, it's more about warehousing large group of, groups of people who are who happen to be the most undereducated people in American society, rather than giving people the resources they need to then um, come out and 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 contribute to society and and. Um, and recover and heal from the things that brought them to prison in the first place. Um, the other issue too is that, you know, we don't have, we no longer, and this happened especially in the 1980s, we don't have a robust um, system for mental health treatment. So a lot of people who need mental health treatment in the US end up in prison because there's no other place um, to put them. So it's also part of the, just like the criminalization of mental health in general and the lack of an infrastructure um, to provide support to people um, who may who might need it. And, and this is again, you know, tied to the disinvestment from social welfare programs and the continued um, escalation of, uh, of investment into, you know, police and surveillance and, um, and the prison system. And this is, and that itself is a, you know, again, a post-civil rights uh, phenomenon. We we have we have found in other disciplines though that there is, for example, in my discussions with um, with law enforcement people. I mean, they put forward an interesting argument that this, despite all the suffering and so on, um, they're they're arguing that there is a, a reality based notion of 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 the expansion the expansion of the violence and so on that, for example, the youth are getting into and have been getting into progressively over the last few decades. So that the, in mental health, for example, we're very concerned that the crimes are starting earlier and earlier uh, every decade. And so, so when you come up with intervention programs, I mean, starting for example, in adulthood is, is a joke now. And the law enforcement people confirm that because of the, the, the ages at which people are starting to use guns. There's a fantastic, um, fantastic, uh, progressively deeper infiltration of weapons and so on. And, and, the, and the people who are running them are not adults. 
they're they're fighting 16 euros and 15 euros and 14 euros are, are are managing these weapons and so there there is this business of the expansion of crime that the law enforcement people don't know don't know uh, what to do about with, with it you know they don't know how to solve it they don't know the interventions that really have an impact um, and and these are not they're, they're not seeing it as connected connected to uh, a system of rebelliousness against um, what the politicians are doing or the lack of X or lack of Y. I mean, take for example, Professor Hinton, take for example, the, the series of um, The Wire. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, the Wire has been studied a great deal by law enforcement people and sociologists and, and even at Harvard, so you must know this, I forget, the, I forget the name of- William Julius Wilson, Professor yes, Wilson. Exactly, yeah. exactly. I was thinking of him. Adore, he's great. Right, but he, he, you know, I had a number of young, young colleagues and young friends and so on who, who, who took his course. I mean, they're, they're, that's they're, the, the, the whole theme of the wire is what's, what's going on here? It's, it's not just a rebelliousness against, against poverty. I mean, these these people these people are, are engaged in a in the in in a in a, a, a cold-blooded approach to treatment of each other and so on. And, and I'm I'm telling you, as a psychiatrist, we we don't understand it. And it, it's not just a rebelliousness against um, you know, being low on the totem pole and, and being caught in the caste system. In fact, people ask about other systems. One of the things that we've, I've been able to talk about with colleagues in Barbados, because that's where I spent a lot of time doing research and that's where I was born and raised. Um, we are very concerned that in Barbados, uh, you know, at, at, at the turn of the century, I mean, blacks were beginning to, to gain um, some, some status and so on within the government. And progressively, you know, by 1966, we got independence and we were hoping, and we one was expecting, you know, since since the, the blacks now had kicked out the colonialists and so on and so forth, that things would change, and 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 violence would decrease. In fact, Barbados is a classic example where the violence has increased dramatically over the years. This the the, the political control has has gotten better for the people on the lower uh, levels of the caste system, but but the but the crimes. Are increasingly violent. Um, psychiatrists just just don't quite understand it. So you know, when I was a boy, nobody used any. Yeah, people got angry, you know, but they'd, they'd throw a rock at you. Um, now, 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 people are talking about actually ball-headedly in the in, in in the middle of the day, going into a store and, and throwing explosives and so on, which is not was was never. A characteristic of Caribbean crime. I mean, people would hide and run to do things, but but now it's 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 there's a viciousness in it that we don't know. Well, what what we say, we wonder if it just comes from the, the influence of the Americans. But so, what do you think about that, Professor Hinton? And this is not this is not seen as this is not seen as part of a revolutionary movement. This is this is being part of this is being seen as some kind of a turn, a turn in the culture that is related to um, crime that we simply don't understand. Yeah, so I think I think that's a um, that's a really really fantastic point. I mean, I mean, one, um, 
I'm not suggesting in my book that the the, the gun violence that you're talking about is part of uh, a rebellion. I'm, you know, in, in, in the book, I'm talking about, you know, what we, the more organized group collective violence that was directed at police officers and institutions um, in the late 60s and early 70s that we continue to see you know, in the late 20th century, Miami in 1980 and LA in 1992. And then of course, um, in Cincinnati 2001, and then of course, you know, Ferguson and Baltimore in 2014 um, and 2015. And I think, you know, part of, um, so, okay. So I'll, I'll talk how, I'll talk in, in some ways about how I'm thinking about it um, in terms of my work. Um, and, and actually the, you know, issues of, of gun violence are at the heart of, um, what about uh, my work and, and violence in general um, in 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 our communities is 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 that you know part of what has motivated my research um, you know my first book kind of laid out the process of criminalization like how is it that that communities became um, over policed and how policies targeted um, low income communities of color explicitly this book. Um, you know, looks at this initial form of collective violence that emerged in, in segregated communities of color, which was directed um, I, um, against external forces, against the police. Um, and somehow beginning in the mid 1970s, so that what you're describing Ezra has been going on for some time, that collective external violence um, turned internal, turned into community warfare, you know, turned into gang violence. Um, and I think the way that that phenomenon has been considered has mostly been, um, you know, through a, through a pathological um, framework. And, um, and, you know, we also have to understand the historical conditions that, that give rise to these forms of violence. So one of the questions that, you know, I think that we need to reckon with, and again, this, this goes back to um, policy priorities, like, why is it in uh, in the communities that are, um, you know, the most policed and that have the highest incarceration rates, that young people are more likely to die um, either by a police officer or by each other. Um, and this is this has become a, the reality that the policy dynamic um, of of um, of urban America in many communities in in, in the late 20th century. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean the, the the I think again, you know, the most promising programs that I've seen uh, that um, confront that are that are trying to confront these issues are again interventionist programs that um, that don't kind of put a police officer as as the as the kind of point of contact, but instead put community members. Um, who have either been incarcerated themselves or been involved in gun violence or gang violence from the communities um, to, to go try to work with and, and reach young people. So one of the programs that I particularly admire is called Advanced Peace and it's based out of Richmond, California, but um, uh, it's, it's been, it's, it's growing, it's been implemented in Sacramento and Stockton, and I just learned um, that it's going to, to be implemented in all five boroughs in New York City. Um, we're essentially, you know, mostly men who have been, um, you know, who were as, you know, in younger years kind of caught up in that life, um, serve as fellows to mentor mostly other young men of color who are either vulnerable to um, getting shot or to 
somebody else and provide them mentorship. They provide them love and support. They provide them, um, you know, essentially a route to, um, you know, establish themselves within a formal economy and expose them, you know, they take them on trips, they expose them to, to worlds outside of their communities. And in, you know, Richmond and Stockton and other places where the advanced peace model has been implemented, the gun violence rates have declined dramatically. Um, so, you know, I, I think that there's, there's still a lot that we don't know um, about where this violence is coming from. I do think that one thing that we're beginning to see now more um, that wasn't as much the case in the 80s and 90s drug economies, especially the crack economy, is that, you know, uh, and this might be what you're talking about as well. You know, I think there's, it's always been young people um, and, and, there, and there was a kind of transition from the, the like fist fights, um, you know, in the 70s to like increased um, gun violence and, and, you know, military grade weapons that young people, young, young low-income people of color had access to in the 80s. But, um, you know, much of, much of the gun violence was of course tied to the drug economy, tied to, you know, the fact that if you're, you know, if you're work, if you're operating a business um, in the informal economy, the way that um, contracts end up getting enforced is through uh, gun violence. Now, however, I know in some cities like Stockton, where I've spent a lot of time working with uh, um, with with community groups um, and the police department, you know, middle there are middle class kids. You know, it's not that it's rooted in um, poverty. You know, there's middle class kids who are participating in this, making YouTube videos and and joining gangs, and so you know that is um, is is troubling. Um, and a new development that I don't, you know, um, I don't know what the what exactly the root cause of that is. I think that we're seeing more um, gun violence across the board. What we do know, and you're much more the expert on this than I am, but from what I understand, you know, gun violence among um, white young white men in the same age group tends to take the form of suicide much more frequently than. Um, than in communities of color. And so there, you know, gun violence is pre prevalent also, but it just takes different forms. And so part of it has to do with, I think, you know, social and cultural aspects of what's going on in this country right now um, that we haven't, you know, that, that we've been ill-equipped um, to also deal with. In Spain, the guys are killing their women. Um, yeah. Can I ask, can I? Can I suggest a possible issue here? Um, it, it's the it's the kind of immediate uh, getting of something or other. I mean, when when I was when we were all young, um, if you communicated with somebody, you meant you write a wrote a letter, and it took two days, three days, five days, whatever, for that letter to get there. Uh, if you wanted to research something, you trekked up to Bancroft or Widener and tried to find a, a book. <clears throat> Uh, with that information. And nowadays, uh, you, you just look it up on Google. And some of it might be not correct, but at least you can get information very quickly. If, if you watched a TV show, uh, it was on, you know, Wednesday night at seven or Thursday at whatever, and you waited until that came. Now everything's streaming. Hell, I can get, uh, I mean, my wife and I are watching Schitt's Creek uh, every, you know, sometimes two issues a night, whenever we want to. 
Um, if if you uh, were again communicating, you, you text or phone. When I when I was young, a long distance call was a big deal. I mean, I called people around here, uh, but but gee, calling somebody in New York State or Chicago or California, wow! And now everything is sort of very. Um, it, it, you get it any time, and 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 in terms of inventory, it's nobody has inventory anymore. It's just in time. We we get it twenty minutes before we need to slap it into the automobile that we're manufacturing. So I I think maybe that need the, the idea that everything has to be done at once, and and I can get it anytime I want. Is is that does that contribute to this, or am I way off? I think you know I think time is speeding up. Um... I think time is speeding up. I think that, and I don't really know, you know, I, I'm not really on social media. I'll, I'm kind of, yeah, and I think it's in part because I'm a historian. I'm kind of wary of technology in general. A lot of my friends, you know, they're on Instagram and everything. I'm on Twitter and that's it. But I think the way that, you know, everybody, I think for the younger generations, everybody is like presenting themselves on social media. And I think that's that might be part of you know what I was talking about about kind of the allure of um, you know for even like middle class kids of this gang lifestyle. It has to do with you know like what's being presented on social media, and also for young women, um, how you know women dis young women display their bodies on social media and you know, like all of the, the, the kind of undertones of sexuality that is like throughout social media and how young women present themselves. And so I think it, it's developing a new kind of script um, and, and everybody documents everything now, you know, people document what they eat for dinner and what they're eating for lunch and what they're doing and put it up online instead of just um, kind of enjoying things for themselves. I also think though, you know, on the flip side, there are um, and I think especially when it comes to the Black Lives Matter movement and awareness about um, these issues, social media has been a major tool and it's allowed people to come together in new ways like, um, like this podcast um, is, you know, I, I think one of the, 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 the real, you know, demonstrates the, the great potential of that. But also, you know, with everybody having the cameras in their pockets on their cell phones, it means that, um, you know, these incidents of police brutality that have been going on for decades, if not centuries, um, you know, are now able to be documented and they're able to be um, shared and serve as a kind of proof that, um, you know, we know before was largely, you know, police brutality in general, police violence was, um, was, was really dismissed. And I think now it's being recognized and reckoned with in a new way because of the way that it's being documented and shared uh, on social media. Another question. Since so much of our violence, so much of our criminality revolves around drugs, illicit drugs in the United States, is there any chance you think we could ever do what Portugal has done, which is de decriminalize all drugs and basically have treatment and they've had a resounding success. Crime has plummeted, uh, treat there has not been a huge increase in terms of drug addicts, et cetera. With our morality, with our Puritan ethics, do you think we could ever get there? I hope so. I mean, I think that the, um, I think the, the decriminal, the move to decriminalize marijuana is, uh, is a start. Um, but I, and, and I think that more people 
with you know with the with the it, it's been amazing to see how the discourse has changed or the rhetoric has changed with the opioid crisis of course you know we know that um you know this has had a, a much stronger impact in um in white communities and so it's being discussed differently than things like crack were exactly. um, in, in the 80s and 90s but i think that we're we're I think that, that has opened up new discussions about a public health framework to address drug abuse. And that's, you know, again, I know I keep on referring to this. I talk about this some in my in my first book. Um, but you know, it really was, I mean, that's partly that's part of why the policies of the Reagan administration in the 80s were so devastating, because you know, there through the 70s, there was kind of a debate about what to, you know, how drug abusers should be treated. And by the 80s, um, you know, that was kind of resolved and they were criminalized, coinciding with what I was talking about earlier, the um, defunding of, um, of mental health treatment facilities. So instead of giving people the resources, the rehabilitation, the treatment that we might need uh, or, or that they might need, you know, increasingly people, the prison system was was used to, to deal with, with these social problems. And so um, I hope that the ongoing drive to decriminalize marijuana uh, will will lead to just new conversations about how we treat drug drugs as a whole and drug abuse um, as a whole because you know that in effect too represents the ways in which um, this system is is bifurcated along race and class lines because of course like some drugs like oxycotton are legal and if you have access to a um, physician who can prescribe that for you that's completely fine whereas you know heroin um is not and can lead you know lead to prison um so i i i think we're beginning to have these discussions and i'm confident you know if if we do if if we do begin to seriously reconsider um our crime control policies that we will move towards a public health framework because that's what is being increasingly um advocated um, if I may, can can I can I ask a question of the group? Sure. So I would love to hear, um, you know, what I I don't know. Just you know, most of you were at Harvard in the late fifties and six early sixties, right? Right. So, right. I so I I would love to hear, you know, like kind of being a college student during that period, which is um, you know my favorite. Period. I mean, period of U.S. history. I just think it's such an important turning point, and uh, um, you know, that we don't understand well enough. Um, I would just love to hear what I don't know. You know, what you're thinking, having lived through that, and then last summer, um, you know, what you think should, should be done. What your impressions are. Um, you know, if you're if you're optimistic about the future, um, what you think. I should be doing as a relatively young uh, professor with with this platform. I mean, it's not Harvard, but it's a similar <laughs> uh, kind of platform. You know, having come into you know adulthood during the 1960s, what 2020 uh, meant to you? Well, Elizabeth, I think just what you're doing is very important, and it's the kind of thing that was important to us back then. That is. Uh, I think I first met John on a picket line. We were, try were trying to integrate the uh, the uh, the lunch counters. Remember? Yeah, you were, and yeah, and uh, so I mean the issues were there, and we were looking for guidance, and we were reading 
whatever we could we could find uh, to give us some tips. And so this kind of work that you're doing is, is going to be extremely important to those people who are going to come forward and try, you know, and, and try to st uh, to to steer the uh, the movements and the protests. So, but I mean, I think we we also came. We, we were at a time when integration was, uh, you know, the the the, the mood, and uh, I think many of us felt that integration might be the way we would resolve these things. And I think when we look back now, I mean, at least when I do, I feel that. Uh, that was a mistake to even think that at the time. And, and, and I think for many of us, the whole racial thing was under the radar for at least the beginning of our, you know, four years. And then in the 62, uh, 63, things sort of heated up. I mean, how do you feel, John? Do you feel differently? Well, a little bit. I think as I became mainly after Harvard, a little bit more politically conscious, um, I always looked upon it as desegregation as the goal, the objective, and the, and the uh, you know, the aim, not uh, the integration was a, a slippery term, which um, kind of disguised the essence of the racial and uh, class injustices in the country. So desegregation, I, I figured, was really what I kind of had before me as the objective. And... Um, I'll say that I don't think we can discuss this issue we're talking about if we don't get into the concepts such as uh, the lumpen proletariat and other terms dealing with our class society because um, the lumpen proletariat as talked about way back by Marx and Engels and others, it arose even in feudalism where the, in the decay of a class society, you can get people who are pushed out of the uh, economy in a way, the normal economy. And they, but they don't just go away, they, they form their own modes of survival and existence. And, and I think what we see here in our, in our uh, racist society with its apartheid and Jim Crow and other um, remainders, residues, and the ongoing uh, instances, we've seen penetrating our community, but not just ours, every community in the country, every kind of ethnic group, um, a rise of a lumpen and people are pushed out of regular society and they, they go hither and yon and they and also develop criminal ways of survival, not just here, but around the world is an international phenomenon, really. I don't think we can talk about these, um, to call something a rebellion. Some things are rebellion, they're purposeful, but some things are riots. I mean, you know, so there are things that are mixed. I don't think we can, by giving something a name, um, gussy up the uglier aspects or the more diseased um, aspects of what's going on in our society. I don't think we're going to get ahead by ignoring, you know, ignoring this thing. I the things that Ezra is bringing out. It's very significant what he's what he points to. It's the real. This is the reality of what we see. It's not, uh, you know. It's not gilded. I, I probably have a little bit different uh, view, and that I have a white father and a black mother, and so integration was very, very much something that uh, I believed in and pushed. 
even though my parents' marriage was illegal in so many states, not until the mid-1960s with the Love decision uh, did their marriage become legal. Uh, but when I look at you, it's nothing short of a miracle. I mean, you're a black woman professor at Yale. Do you think we had that in the 1960s? Do you think we had black studies? Uh, do you think we had a course of anything like that? Absolutely not. So I we think it's at the beginning, it was kind of buried uh, at the beginning. And it wasn't until, frankly, post-graduation uh, that many of us became more heavily involved uh, in racial equality, uh, no question. I, I was a member of SNCC. I did some, you know, sit-ins, encounters, et cetera. And all I was called was, you know, a nigger lover. And I said, no, I'm not a nigger lover. I'm a nigger, okay? Let, let's, let's face it, guys, I've got a black mother. Uh, but, you know, that was very, very small compared to uh, some of the mass movements uh, that came late is what it amounted to. So, uh, but I, I just applaud you and I just look at you as a shining example of how far we have come uh, in the last 50 years. It's been, it's been just remarkable. I mean, I think in terms of myself, I mean, I was, I, I feel that I was somewhat naive in that when Obama was elected, I felt that, you know, we were making progress, we're on the way, but I feel now that they're just going to change the rules. I mean, they're going to change the rules as we go along and eventually it'll get to the point where blacks or minorities, you know, can't even vote. So I'm, I'm not that optimistic right now. I mean, how do you, for example, on January 6th, what, how do you classify that? Was that a rebellion? Was that a, a revolt? Was, what was that? Yeah, so that was, you know, that's tough. I mean, I think that we should refer to that, you know, it's, it's called an insurrection. People say it was a riot. I mean, I think it was an attack. Uh, it was an attack on the Capitol. Um, you know, this, this mob of, of, of MAGA supporters, Trump supporters, you know, came in wanting to uh, lynch the vice president and, you know, started tearing stuff from the walls. And I mean, that was an attack. Um, it was a, it was an attempted coup. Um, so that was something I, I think completely different than um, not, not unlike white mob violence throughout U.S. history, but um, but something completely different than than the political violence um, that 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 I discuss in the book. <laughs> I think it was an act of sedition, absolute sedition, and I think they should be charged with that. And I'm a little disappointed that I have not seen our prosecutors come up with that term yet because it was treason. It was sedition. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there is a professor, Brittany something at Rutgers who I think crystallizes this situation. She says, white violence is seen as protest. Black protest is seen as violence. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. That's, yeah. yep. And that's, and I, and that's exactly what I write about in the book. Yeah. Yep. So Kent, uh, uh, getting back to uh, the book itself, uh, Elizabeth, I live in uh, Freeport, Maine in, uh, uh, Maine buys with Vermont every year to which is the whitest state in the union. <clears throat> but given that uh, uh, with the Black Lives Matter activity and so forth, we've now just recently created, uh, I don't forget whether they're calling it sort of a police review board. It's, it's not a standing ongoing board, but it's uh, sort of a one-time examination into the police department. And you sort of suggested that these kinds of interventions are basic for the most part useless but I'm wondering if they're not, if they're good examples 
Uh, and there are any books that would say how to do this right, I'd be grateful to know where they are. Yeah, just on that, just briefly, I mean, I think, I think civilians, so I, I, I don't want to say that, you know, any, anything and reform can be good, but it's not necessarily a means to an end. And I think that a lot of times we have to be careful that it doesn't involve um, further kind of entrenching uh, egregious or aggressive policing practices. Um, review boards, the, the civilian review boards are incredibly important. I think that anything that moves towards more community oversight over police is a good thing. And, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book again and again and again, and then we see this after um, rebellions have dissipated in communities, but, you know, but that one of the demands that emerges is for civilian review boards over police. And we know that um, police departments and especially police unions um, are very, very resistant to any kind of oversight or accountability um, to the community, to communities, or to cede any power to community representatives. So I think review boards um, is, you know, something, it can be really, really important mechanisms for holding officers accountable and ensuring that um, that policing strategies are not, you know, are, are based on protection and not on just like the warrior mentality that's about getting the bad guys. I mean, police officers, as they do in middle class and, and white communities, you know, it's about keeping people safe. Um, it's about offering people protection and that's not what low income communities tend to get. Let me just ask a question, Elizabeth, where did you do your undergraduate work? At, at, at New York University. And do you know how many black students there were in your freshman class? Ooh, well, I, so no, I don't. Um, I think, I think NYU was about 10%. Uh, so I don't know, there's a couple, probably a couple thousand. Okay, there were 19 in ours. Right. Yeah. So that perhaps is as telling a commentary on the difference between your generation and ours. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that's one of the biggest um, successes of the civil rights movement is the expansion um, and the increase in enrollment in secondary universities of um, students of color and black students in particular. And, you know, the formation of um, African-American or black studies departments, um, you know, is, is another um, outgrowth, uh, really, really important out outgrowth of both the civil rights and black power movements. And I think John made an important point that, and that is that there's a difference between desegregation and integration. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in a little town in Northeastern Oklahoma that had a very strong and, and vibrant black community. Integration essentially destroyed that community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's another really important point. And, you know, it's not, um, and I think I think one one thing that we learned, you know, the goal the goal may not be integration, but about uh, more equitable distribution of resources, um, is again really I mean the unequal distribution of resources and the you know general wealth stratification in this country I think are you know the root of so many um, of our social problems, and so integration alone, you know, that won't won't solve. Um, won't necessarily solve those issues. Uh, in in St. Paul, for instance, there was a vibrant black community. And what they did was build an interstate through it. Detroit Simply, too. 
ate it up. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, well, integration, say it was a money saving the way they carried it out rather than provide the black schools, for example, in education, the same amount of funding as the white schools, the predominantly white schools. Mm-hmm. And in those neighborhoods, what they did is shut down and weaken the black schools and institutions. And, and so that was really uh, a, a money saving. Mm-hmm. And it really hurt the black community as uh, an organic community. And that happened, of course, in every kind of every area of life. They didn't equalize the funding because they would have spent they would have had to pay more money. Right. Way more money to provide the black schools with the same kind of support. Mm-hmm. And John, just just along with that uh, a corollary, I grew up in Washington, D.C. And of course, what we had was urban renewal, that we were going into the black areas to renew those areas. And urban mm-hmm. renewal, of course, resulted in Negro removal. Um, Never got to go back into those fancy apartments, that's for damn sure. One other question for you, and that is, with the militarization of our police departments, it's come such a long way from neighborhood policing, where police used to live in the neighborhood, and were neighbors, if you like. And now we have tanks, we have AK-47s, or whatever the hell they have, uh, etc. How do we go about demilitarizing? because basically the army was giving them all this surplus equipment and they loved it. They, yeah. could, they could also be, you know, soldiers is what it amounted to. And they'd have the big guns. How do we change that dynamic? Yeah, and that's that's such a great question. And, and after this, I should probably run because I, I promised my two-year-old daughter I would take her to the park. <laughs> right. We could keep you on forever. <laughs> I know, I know. I, I'd yeah, love to yeah. come back and continue this discussion. All right. um, but yeah, that, that's actually, you know, that... Um, the, the transfer of those surplus military weapons, I think really importantly, you know, happens in the context of Vietnam in the in the 1960s and is made possible by that piece of legislation that Safe Streets Act of 1968 that I talked about earlier. Um, and it's, you know, comes into the, the kind of like dynamics of, of riot, of so-called riot control during this period and leads you know, instead to kind of an escalation of both police and community violence. Um, and so I, I think, again, it's about rethinking our public safety approaches to, you know, to, to instead of responding to every problem with a uniformed officer with a gun, think about, you know, and this is like an ongoing thing that we've been talking about, like how we might be able to respond to familial disputes with social workers or with community outreach workers instead of police or, you know, um, traffic, you know, we've seen so many recent uh, cases of police killings resulting from routine traffic stops. Um, You know, traffic officers don't necessarily need to be pulling someone over. You don't necessarily need to have a gun that's assuming that the the situation is going to escalate. And these are, these are some of the things that, um, and it's in the chat now, but that the Ithaca police department is moving towards is, is, is different kind of setups of first responders, recognizing that you don't always need to have uniformed officers to respond to every call that you get. Some calls do require, um, officers to be armed, but not every single one of them. And it's very often, and this is one of the things that I, you know, say is a lesson from um, the history of the book is that police violence, you know, tends to precipitate um, community violence. And so, you know, de-escalating and, and in other countries too, police, not all police officers are armed and carry guns. 
Um, you know, like why do we have officers with guns in public schools, um, for instance? So I think, you know, so much of it is, is and it's gonna take, it's gonna be bold and it's gonna take a lot of um, courage and it's a battle of hearts and minds, I think, especially given the climate um, in the US today, but it's about envisioning a different kind of society and just an entirely new approach uh, to public safety. That's, that's not impossible uh, to achieve despite what, um, what, what many, uh, especially conservative critics might, uh, might say, you know, continuing the kind of fear mongering um, view of American society and, and people of color in particular. We must rethink our public safety approaches. Author Elizabeth Hinton thinks that that is possible. Her book is titled America on Fire, the untold history of police violence and black rebellion since the 1960s. That's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, and you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.